0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: Life after a totalitarian revolution is not unlike a day after a cyclone. The air may be crisp and brilliant, but there's plenty of debris around to remind us of what is missing. You have to ask yourself, where should I start to pick up the pieces? In a country as ancient as Iran, telling stories has been a time-tested way of resisting political, social, and cultural invasion. Our stories and myths become our home, creating a sense of continuity with a past that had been so consistently plundered and obliterated. For many of us, lighting out was the only way to survive. It was not always possible or desirable in a physical sense, but we could escape through the realm of imagination and ideas.
0: Azar Nafisi is the author of Reading Lolita in Tehran, Things I've Been Silent About, Anti-Terra, a critical study of Vladimir Nabokov's novels, and Bibi and the Green Voice, her new book is Republic of the Imagination, America in Three Books. Thank you for joining me, Azar. Thank you for having me. This book begins with a rabble-rousing call for readers and reading, and talks about the importance of reading. I think that's just fantastic. And Because reading is so important, and what you point out is that while reading seems like it's a private act, when you do it, you're really joining an enormous community.
1: Oh, definitely both the act of writing and reading are solitary acts and you know we, we read in the privacy of our homes or wherever we read but at the same time you're community communicating with all these people that you don't see but who are probably at the, the same time as you are are reading the same book and and, and, and you know sharing different emotions and and and, and feelings um, it transcends the boundaries of countries, nationality, ethnicity, religion, you name it, reading uh, transcends it.
0: In this book, you undertake to look at America through the eyes of three books with an epilogue. And I'd like you to talk uh, about this decision. I I love this idea of the importance of not just reading a book, but rereading it. And what you do is you reread
1: the books, and we reread them Mm -hmm. through you. You know, I feel that um, reading is like um, having an actual experience, or and, and every time you go over that experience, or it's like going to a beloved place, or, or falling in love. At first, it's the first impression that matters. You know, you, you, you meet someone and you think, oh, this person somehow... Um, grabs me. I, I, I like you know, knowing more about him. That is the first reading. But in the second and third and fourth and fifth and you know on and on, you find out the details about that person. Um, you find out uh, undiscovered corners of, 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 of his being, of his psyche. And so there is no end to it. I mean, reading presents to you a unique world and there are many corners to that world.
0: As an experience, one of the things you pointed out, and I think this is so true, is that the memories created by reading are in many ways indistinguishable and equivalent and sometimes superior to those of actual
1: experience. Well, because... A work of art or, or, or a great work of fiction or, 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 or poetry, um, it is not just about the factual occurrences of, 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 an, of an event, um, it creates for us um, the feelings, the emotions and, and it evokes a kind of sensuality as you recall, as if you are recalling in memory an experience that had such deep um, impression on you that you never lost it you know so uh, i feel that um, it reveals to us aspects of experience that while we experiencing a lot of times we miss
0: you know one of the things that you talk about in the introduction is the importance of reading in as a civic act, as being part of a country.
1: Since readers are communities, we have already agreed with that, but especially uh, not just in a democratic society. You notice how throughout history, in this country, for example, women before they had uh, the right to vote, they would create groups where in, in those groups they would read and discuss. And and in a sense, the act of sharing this reading um, or the act of telling, retelling the story helps you gain control over your life. And I feel that in a democratic society, it is very important to think about the complex and ambiguous aspects of life and to be able to judge and to be able to participate. How could we participate as responsible citizens um, if we do not have the deep experience of how to live democratically? You
0: know, um, also too, one of the things that that really struck me was that reading is, a way for us to immerse ourselves in the minds of others in a way that you can just not duplicate. No other artistic experience has the equivalent of what reading can do.
1: No, you're right. Every artistic experience appeals to one aspect of our being as human beings. And reading, especially fiction, Um, A great writer is the kind of writer who can put herself in the mind and hearts um, of each of her characters, even the characters she dislikes. You know, and I mean, with Carson McCullers, for example, um, uh, Richard Wright wrote about uh, one of her characters, an African American doctor, Doctor Copeland. That, uh, despite the fact that um, she was such a young girl, he said that no one, no white author, has ever created an African American character that was so alive and so real. And and how could she do that? Uh, Apart from empathizing so much with a man, who, none of whose experiences she had, by putting herself in his in, in in his place, and we through the act of reading are repeating the same action. You
0: know? and, and two, reading itself, and I think this is highly underestimated, is an artistic is an experience of artistic creation. The reader puts a lot of horsepower oh, yes. into that book.
1: Definitely. Readers are constantly creating and recreating your book. One of the most enjoyable experiences for me, and one reason that I love to go on these book tours, in fact, and, 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 and talk to people, is the fact that so many readers bring up aspects about your book that you, for you is also a new discovery. You know, and, and, and it is amazing. You never knew that that existed until someone brought it up.
0: And this for you, too, is this, these book tours and reading and writing, that experience is a really peculiar combination of extreme intimacy but a a huge gulf of distance that can't be bridged and doesn't need to be bridged.
1: No, because... The act of writing itself is so personal. You might not be writing about yourself, but you are talking about your deepest feelings and emotions. And, and, and so, in the reader, a good reader um, can get you. You know that you're laying yourself bare, and that person is going to enter your most intimate thoughts and and, and emotions. That is why I always say that when, as a reader myself, um, you know, I meet a stranger in a bookstore. I meet a stranger in the metro station, and they're reading a book, and we start to talk. And it seems as if we've known one another forever. And I call this sort of relationship um, uh, that I love having these relationships with intimate strangers. Uh, because, you know, you know nothing about one another, but you share this moment which is very intimate and which is very personal and which is not repeatable.
0: You know, uh, one of the things I love about this book is the way you weave your own experiences and create the characters from your life like Farah, who runs through your examination of Huck Finn. This is a really beautiful way of approaching literary criticism because it makes it so personal. It makes the book personal, it makes the story personal. It's much more effective way for us to re-experience the book as we experience your life alongside the book.
1: Well, there, there are probably um, two reasons for it. One is that it's very difficult for me to uh, express an ab- abstract idea except through making it concrete through a narrative. And, and, and um, for me, the act of writing, like the act of reading, is a constant conversation. And when I brought Farah into that chapter, Hak chapter, I first wrote the Hak chapter just as an act of pure literary criticism. I wrote a hundred pages. And I reread that. I sent it to my editor. She read it. She didn't say anything about it. And I read that and I thought, there's no heart in this you know um i i i can't i can't I can't have this published, and I wrote her and I said, "You know, I don't like this and she said, "I didn't want to tell you, but i i, I felt the same way about it and 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 I felt that Farah was beckoning me, you know all those conversations that we had and and so um I had to bring that into it and and the second point is of course a lot of people think that um writing or reading is separate from our reality and i wanted to show how close reality and fiction are actually to one another i don't think one can live without the other
0: we really need the our ability to understand and imagine what happens in fiction to understand and imagine what's happening in reality because it it's only um, through fiction that we can understand that reality is, in large part, how we see it. It's, it's
1: imagined. Yes. Reality. I mean, you know, reality is also far more fragile. I mean, Um, I, I keep telling people that, well, my own experience has been that everything you call real, everything you call home can be taken away from you at the blink of an eye through a war or a revolution or a hurricane, you know, an earthquake. Reality is fragile. In fact, it is fiction that is enduring. We're still reading Antigone. Uh, or, or or Shakespeare and and we empathize with them so much as if they're part of us as if they're alive living today and I, and i always believe that writing is like what nabokov talked about he says it is conclusive evidence that we have lived and 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 i think that that is what fiction does
0: one of the things i really like that you say about twain is that you say Twain creates a myth of America in the making. His aim is not to recapture the past, but in a strange way to retrieve the future. Yeah. And I think this is so important about, about all writing, is that it it unfolds as the fiction unfolds in front of us, not behind us, even it may come from a
1: distant past, but it extends out towards a future we cannot imagine. That is the amazing thing about it. And you know how writers keep saying that we're dealing with the truth. And, and people say, what the heck is he or she talking about the truth? But that is the whole point. That the, a great writer reveals to you something essential about life. Something enduring about life. And it predicts what will happen. I mean, it reveals the past. It it makes you look, question the present, and it connects you to the future. And, and that is why each of these books, you know, they all were written in the last century. Of course, Twain was written in the 19th century, and yet he is so alive.
0: One of the novels that you talk about is Babbitt, and I really like what you have to say about Babbitt and what Babbitt leads you to which is a, a look at our education system. Yeah. And I think this is so critical because education is not job vocation. They are different things, aren't they?
1: They are definitely different things, and especially in a democratic society and, and especially in this country. Everybody thinks of American pragmatism um, uh, to be some sort of a utilitarian thing. Pragmatism it is, is not utilitarian. Frederick Douglass used to say that you need to learn with your heart hand and your mind, you know. So pragmatism means that knowledge is essential to our survival, that is what is pragmatic. Utilitarianism just sees in front of the nose. It is very short-sighted. So reducing all the passion, all the meaning that goes into a great education to the search for vocation, how do you expect our children would be wanting to give or to take risks to innovate, uh, to sacrifice for their country, because all of this exists in a great education and not for someone to whom we say, this is a dog-eat-dog world, go and get money, that's why you're coming to college.
0: Well, part of this, too, has to do, I think, with the interpretation of the word liberal. It has this very political meaning now. But a liberal education is an education that allows you to learn how to learn. You have to be flexible. You have to know, okay, this model for learning no longer works. I have to find a new one.
1: It is great knowledge is always about taking risks. Because unlike what people think, you're not going there to acknowledge or confirm what you know. You're going into unknown territory and you have to be ready to be questioned. Uh, and, And you know, as far as imaginative knowledge, it is not something that you have today and you throw away tomorrow. Since the dawn of man, we have explained the unknown through telling stories stories in Bible, in Quran, in Torah, the Greek mythology, all of them are trying to discover something about what it means to be human and what it means to be human and survive in a world that we don't know. Let's give the world a name. Part of it is through science and part of it is through humanities and liberal arts. And, And science and humanities are very close. They're very interwoven, in fact.
0: You have a great quote in there from the physicist, I think, uh, Robert Wilson, who says that uh, the liberal arts are what makes a, a country worth defending.
1: Isn't it beautiful? It is, And, and, and you know, Einstein, one of the greatest uh, scientists uh, the world has seen, um, he talked about how much he felt that imagination was more important than scientific knowledge. He says, knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world. And I think this is such a beautiful way of describing imagination. And of course, Steve Jobs that I talk about, because people keep talking about technology and as if technology and um, imagination should be separate. Well, people should be doing their homework about Steve Jobs a little bit to find out that, you know, that is not how he felt about technology.
0: Well, too you mentioned Einstein mm-hmm. Einstein's impact was more than just in just the science world yes. his look and his the way he dressed the way he carried himself yes. that was a huge that showed up in the 1960s and has been with us ever since thank you very much <laughs>
1: right. you know i don't know if you have seen or um, your listeners have seen that magnificent statue of uh, Einstein in Washington DC in front of Academy of Sciences it's a huge wonderful humble Einstein with these sandals, you know, and that hair, you know, sitting there and and even beckoning to you. You know, that is a real scientist. And one of the
0: things, too, you make, the point you make is that the education that Huck Finn gets in that book, it's an education in unlearning. He has to unlearn, yes. and he has to not be more civilized. He is over civilized.
1: That—that yeah. that is um, actually you mentioned the unlearning. Well, that's what Mark Twain says. Mark Twain says education is a process of unlearning. You know, and and Hockfin from the very first page. You remember how he spells the word civilized with uh-huh. an S, <laughs> and he changes all the words that we use habitually, the meaning of them, like respectable. She he keeps saying, you know, Miss Watson was respectable and then later on Tom Sawyer was respectable. It doesn't mean that they were really people whom we should respect. It means that they were shameful, you know, and right is wrong. When he says that um, I did the wrong, I said I was made up to do, um, to do wrong, so I decided that I won't give up Jim to Miss Watson, he says I did wrong, <laughs> you know. Because uh, he's changing the way you look at the world, and that's dangerous.
0: And that's the power of words themselves. And this is, you know, long before Orwell, who did a magnificent job explaining the power of language, you talk about the power (laughs) of language in this book. And the way that writers can, just by using different words and by using different, creating new words, using old words in new ways, can change the way we see things.
1: Well, that is what Mark Twain did um, with Huckleberry Finn. I call um, call the book um, A Declaration of Literary Independence because he created a new world, and he created this new world through changing that language. No one until then had spoken the way Huck and Jim did. No one had seen that landscape through those eyes, you know. So he gave us something completely new, you know. Uh, Arthur Miller says that uh, he wrote as if he was the first writer, as if no one had written before him, and it's all in the language.
0: You talk about a Sinclair, and he was just this tremendously ugly man, but he gave us something that, Has been necessary ever since the first novel of anxiety. I love that idea.
1: (laughs) Well, you 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 notice that uh, we're still living in the age of anxiety. (laughs) You know, the 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 kind of anxieties that modern world and America is almost single handedly the 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 creator of modern world um, has brought for us. You know.
0: And Sinclair Lewis, his world was a world of extreme conformity and non conformity. Yes. And this is a this is also really prescient. I as you as I reread Babbitt through your eyes, I'm thinking, Well, this is an early kind of science fiction novel.
1: It I'm, is It is, you know, that is why I mentioned that it reminded me of some of these mm, American films like uh, Truman's, uh, Truman Show, Mm -hmm. uh, or or American Beauty, uh, because everything seems to be so staged. Everything looks like a theatrical uh, prop, you know, that uh, the houses where Babbitt and his friends live, The way they talk, the way they act, um, the heart is not in it. And when the heart is not in something, um, it is all, uh, as you say, alien, therefore science fiction.
0: In The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, we have uh, a deaf mute at the center of four Mm. people. They all use him as their mirror. And I think that's a really interesting uh, discussion that you have about how these four characters use this man as a means of seeing themselves, and that's exactly how
1: we use books. Well, that is exactly how we use books, but with a difference in that these characters are so lonely because they have this passion which doesn't get any answer, each of them, like the girl Mick loves music. She doesn't even have a radio to listen to music. She goes at nights and listens uh, by people's windows to listen to their music. Jake Blunt is a labor agitator um, whom everybody is making fun of. Nobody's taking seriously. Dr. Copeland is worried about his race. um, And and even his own people, the African-Americans, are too afraid and timid to to, uh, fight for their rights. So they all find someone who can't hear them. So in a very strange sense, they're talking to themselves. And, and the interesting thing is that um, after Singer is gone from their lives, um, there is a glimmer of hope for them because they have a passion. And, and Carson McCullers' message, if there is a message in a book, is that if you have passion, you find a way of connecting to the world. And, 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 and that is great. And, and books are great connectors, um, not in a sentimental way, but in a genuine way, you also
0: weave through that story the story of a man named Mike in your life and I, and that 's
1: such oh, yes. a, a
0: powerful and, and tragic story. Talk about that discovering that again and uh, writing that down that kind of you say that story is a way of capturing chaos and <laughs> and that 's a great. That is a perfect example of it.
1: I'm glad to bring Mike up. I knew him in the 70s when I was involved in the student movement and he... Mike had, in the 60s, um, been involved in um, the civil rights movement and, and any movement around political movement, Mike was there. You know, and everybody knew him and people respected him. And he and I used to have many talks, but I always took him only as a political creature. You know, I he had great passion for music and after his death I discovered that, um, you know, he played and uh, sang and he sang a song opposing... Um, Oki from Muskogee. You remember that song? I'm an Oki from Muskogee. And Mike talks about I'm a hippie from Norman, Oklahoma. You know, we wear our hair long in Oklahoma, you know. And. And um, then uh, later on I discovered, when I wanted to uh, write this book, that how, um, by and by, uh, that whole 60s, 70s uh, excitement had died down, but Michael had stayed in that passion. Everything around him had changed. Nobody was listening to him anymore. And he had become a sort of an eccentric good man around town type of a thing, and he had died on, on the bench of, of, of the library at the University of Oklahoma, where he was spinning these conspiracy theories, uh, you know, about the president of the University of Oklahoma, and, and, and I felt so sad, because I remember this guy. And how active he was, and he had a mission and he had a passion. And as he became more and more isolated in that passion and lived in his own world, um, you know, he, he couldn't um, really genuinely live. I, I, I almost imagine as if he died of heartbreak, uh, you know. But at the same time, people remember him. Uh, and, and after his death, we all started sort of thinking about him again. Well,
0: I think one of the things that you do a wonderful job of in this book is weaving these stories through and bringing yourself and your friends and your own life through because what you've lived through is mind-boggling to, to so many Americans to, well, as you say, you welcomed in your murderers in yeah. Iran in the, in the revolution. And that was, that was such a, a terrific
1: tragedy. That was a terrific tragedy, and it is unfortunately um, uh, true that history does repeat itself, in fact, uh, because you see that in 20th century, I mean, the Islamic Revolution was the last revolution of the 20th century. You go back to the beginning of that century, you have the Russian Revolution and the bloodbath it created. Then you have, of course, fascism, and at the heart of the most... um, civilized country in the world, Germany, and, and you wonder why do people not learn, and, and that is why books become so important, and books become symbol of anti-totalitarian mindset. What did Hitler do when he was burning the books? What did Stalin do when he was putting poets um in, in labor camps, and what did Ayatollah Khomeini do when he first targeted women minorities and and writers and poets and and universities they 're very scared of ideas and of imagination
0: and you talk about uh, the fact that when people try to change the facts in the books, I could only think of how there's a state. In right now, mm. that's changing the textbooks so that they yes. only reflect the positive things about America. Oh, oh. And
1: that's yeah. terrifying. It is terrifying. I mean, you know, um, I keep telling people that uh, Sinclair Lewis actually has a book called It Can't Happen Here, uh, which is a sat- satirical allusion to the fact that we think fascism can't happen here. But the point about it is that... It's those... also a
0: great Mothers of Inventions yeah, yeah Mothers of
1: <laughs> Inventions whom I love. <laughs> um, the, the The whole point about it is that these societies show the potentials within the democratic societies for the best and the worst. We're all human beings, and we are all capable of the best and the worst. So democratic societies, when they become complacent, when they think that oh, this can Ever happen here most probably that is when it is happening you know and uh, one of the worst things is this kind of political correctness on the right and the left when books are becoming I mean we have banned books weeks and and look at the most some of the most cherished classics um, are among the banned books and, and we're continuing it we're conti- I don't know if you've read Diane Ravitch's marvelous book uh, The Language Police
0: uh, no, but you, you talk about the, uh, the warning labels that they want to put on curriculums that, oh yeah. my God, this book might have some racist terms yes. in it. Somebody rewrote Huck Finn and took out yes, uh, the offending wor- words.
1: Yeah, y- y- you know, I mean, our children, we are now t- so much reaching for that brave new world uh, that we want a world completely without pain. We want everything to become entertainment. So our children can't even read about a past in this country that was so violent by reading huckleberry Finn. They need to be told, oh, this might traumatize you. So what? Get over it, you know? I mean, the whole point about Americans, what they were proud of, was that they're resilient, that they face pain and difficulty and cruelty in the face. And now, uh, we're, we're, we're all very afraid of, of, of being pained, uh, aren't we, human beings? You know, don't we need to uh, to understand pain and and, and overcome it through, through understanding it? It makes me very angry, actually, to tell you the truth. <laughs>
0: I've been speaking with Azar Nafisi. Her new book is The Republic of Imagination: America in Three Books. Thank you for joining me, Azar. Uh,
1: thank you so much. I had so much pleasure talking to you.